and welcome to Autopod. My name is Ken Sweeney and this podcast series we are talking all things auto, in particular classic vehicles and historic motor racing. I will be meeting and chatting with guests from all over the world in the quest to find the best stories and conversations. In this episode, I'm looking at the incredible Group C Championship of the 1980s, and our guest for this will be Le Mans veteran racer Richard Jones. So strap in, hit the gas, and let's get on the road. Richard, hi, how are you? Oh, hi, Ken. Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's really great to get a chance to somebody who was actually there at the time about Group C racing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how Group C came about? I mean, what was the sports car scene like at the time? Well, immediately prior to C2, it was Group uh, Group 6. And uh, that was uh, a world championship. Uh, and it ran not alongside F1, but it was, you know, every other weekend when it wasn't an, when there wasn't an F1 race. Uh, it was some great racing, uh, open top, which I love, I like having my head in the fresh air, but, uh, that's another story. That's my single seater head on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, it was a very special era and, um, I was disappointed when it, you know, when it all changed and, uh, we'll probably get onto that later about all that, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was my first Le Mans, which of course was 78, which is always very special. The Group 6 series, was that getting a bit tired? Was it lacking manufacturer and team input? And is that why they came up with the Group C idea? Well, no, that which is uh, that was why I was rather mystified, because uh, it was very strong. There were a number of um, uh, F1 drivers were in the championship. You know, my first race, I was racing, I was racing Formula Ford in England and racing against Graham Hill, Henry Pescarolo, Dadamich, Mozzario mm-hmm. the other weekends. I mean, it was bizarre, you know, but uh, great fun. And I drove two litre and three litre uh, Group 6. But at the beginning, it was two litre. And the Group C um, series, was it was conceived, obviously, as a global series. Was there an initial idea to kind of bring the Americans in on it? Did they, was that the idea that they were going to make it an international series? Or was it always going to be that America would have a separate but similar type of racing? Right. Well, it's all so political, this, but because uh, there was the FIA or FISA at the time, FISA stroke FIA, the ACO at Le Mans, and IMSA in America. Hmm. Now, um, the FIA weren't really that bothered about the Americans coming over to Europe together to, to race. And likewise, I don't think that they weren't particularly bothered either of coming. So, uh, but Le Mans always attracted the Americans, and there was still to this day the sort of conflict between uh, the regs for IMSA and the regs for the ACO and the FIA regs because they're all, you know, they're all power mad and want to control everything themselves. <laughs> so that's um, that's an opinion, of course. So it was, I think, uh, because Group Six was still strong. I mean, mm. uh, so it was politics. And uh, to be honest, at the time, I, I'm a driver. I'm not a politician. So I just had to go with the flow. So I couldn't change anything. So that was it. 
but that was why it changed, I think, because something to do within all that politics is why it changed, right. it, in my opinion. And how did you actually get into the series? I mean, Group C, was, was it something that you stumbled into or did you always have a plan to get in there? Well, no, it was just a natural progression because the privateers in Group 6 became privateers in Group C. Right. So it was almost business as usual, really, except we were driving a different type of car. But so from my perspective as a driver, it was just not a lot changed except for the car I was driving. Okay, and was there, just uh, just digressing slightly, was there a big difference between Group 6 and, say, the original first-generation C, C cars? Uh no, except they stuck a roof on it for right. some reason. That was it. <laughs> and, and a lot, of I mean, course, there was a lot of um, conversions, wasn't there? There was a couple of conversions from Group Six to C C One, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So the, to drive, apart from not getting that nice fresh air and breathing in the smell of the barbecues at night at Le Mans and things like that, you know, uh, which I which I missed. But anyway, it's what it was, and uh, it's still a fantastic event of course mm. it's an honor to drive those sorts of cars it really is and just in regards to driving did you drive for um certain particular teams or did you have a wide range of teams that you drove for at the time i could only describe myself as a as a journeyman i suppose mm -hmm. because there were a lot of good drivers there that were paying for drives which was very irritating to somebody like me but um it's uh, if they and I, I understand, especially in, with the privateers, if they could get a good driver uh, who's paying them a lot of money to drive it, I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? But uh, so I, I used to finish up getting a lot of last-minute drives with mm -hmm. whoever was stuck without a driver because they hadn't found one of those guys. That's roughly this story. And the series was broken into two categories: C1 and C2. Now, I, I know you had experience in both of those categories. So, could you tell me was there big differences in performance between the two categories? Yes, with with an odd exception, which uh, was uh, a, a C2, where we had a Formula One Tolman engine in it for qualifying one year. Okay, <laughs> it was quite exciting. Right, uh, but they didn't. The, the establishment didn't like that. So, in terms of performance, would would a C two be able to keep up with the uh, C one in qualifying and then lose overall in the race? Was that was that how it would work? Well, well, no. Uh, the, the, look, they're both C two are, are quick cars. Mm. C ones are quicker cars, and the C two, according to the regs, was not supposed to out qualify a C one car. But uh, Chamberlain, Hugh Chamberlain, bless him, being him, and Brian Hart, who who built Formula One engines for. Uh, turbocharged Formula One engines for Tolman. Uh, the F1 regs went, became redundant, and Brian had got a, you know racks full of engines with them, and they didn't have anywhere to go. And so uh, he did a deal with Hugh, or Hugh did a deal with Brian to build those engines from 1500 cc to two liter turbocharged for the C2 sports car racing and there was nothing in the regs that said we couldn't do it and in well I forget which year I think it was 87 or 88 uh, we put it on the fourth row we were C2 pole by about 10 rows wow <laughs> and uh, and on on the fourth row of the grid at Le Mans so it made for an interesting start because we had to turn the boost right down so the first few laps were quite interesting which when I took the start that year so it was uh, yeah so no, to answer the question, the C2 cars were supposed to be a lot slower, but on one occasion we, you know, we got round the regs and got mm -hmm. right up there, with, right up the sharp end of the of the C1 grid. 
but it never happened again. <laughs> uh, in terms of the actual, say, technology behind the cars, particularly particularly around, say, 88 to 91, when uh, the manufacturer team started to kind of invest a lot more, were, were the um, off-the-shelf cars, like, say, the Spice or, or the Gerbhards and all, were they, um, were they simpler in terms of design and manufacturing, or did they have the same level of, say, technology invested in them? No, they didn't have the same mm-hmm. amount of technology invested in them. I mean, the works teams were always going to beat us, mm. in fairness. So we just, I mean, they, they're, they're multi, multi-million pounds, mm. tens of millions of pounds budgets, and um, we were very good at doing well mm. uh, in um, on, on a much, 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 much smaller budget. So the honest answer is, yeah. The, the technology wasn't there. This, the, it was a long time. Obviously, the, the main difference between Group 6 cars and um, Group C cars was uh, the, when the serious ground effect came in. Mm-hmm. So the Spice was really the first privateer-type car that you could buy off the shelf with the ground effect. And uh, that's, I think that answers the question. Let's talk about the factory teams for a second. We we had Lancia, Porsche, Mercedes, Jaguar, Aston Martin, I think Toyota, Nissan, and then Mazda, along with you know splatter of others that were maybe you know kind of half committed. Uh, why do you think um, so many manufacturers were attracted to to uh, Group C Racing at that time? Those guys are hard nosed business people. Mm. They would not have done that unless it made commercial sense, and it did. It gave all those manufacturers a global platform for their products. And the, the jewel in the crown is to win Le Mans. If you win Le Mans, the next day in the showrooms, and this is fact, you had to put extra staff on. It, it sold cars like you wouldn't believe. I, I know it, it sounds strange, but it's, it's a fact. And, um, and also, if you're selling cars all over the world, if you're selling German cars in Australia and you've got dealerships in Australia and you go and do the Australian Grand Prix and you invite all the dealers. I mean, it's a whole package and it made commercial sense and they made money out of it. And if they stopped making money out of it, they stopped racing Right. <laughs> and left us privateers. And Richard, I wanted to ask you about the privateers. How important were they to Group C? Well, in a word, Ken, they were very important because if they weren't there, there wouldn't have been enough cars on the grid to make it viable. Because in the highly unlikely event that they all ran three cars, it still would only make, you know, whatever, 15 cars. And, and that doesn't make a grid. And also, manufacturers come and go. That's very true. And uh, and the privateers are the constants. I mean, it's the, it was the same privateers that, okay, other privateers would come and go. But there was a real Chamberlain being a, a classic example, um, you know, that had been there through the, Group 6 and Group C. Uh, so they were the constants and the manufacturers were, you know, they'd come and go. In fact, we used to pull the lag about that because there's a lot of camaraderie, you know. Yeah. And of course, we knew, we, we all knew lots of the boys that worked for the manufacturers because they'd all worked for privateers before they went. And when the, and when the manufacturers went away, they came back to, to the privateers. So we all, it was all a very close fun. So, oh, you, you're back with us now, are you? Yeah, mm-hmm. No, they've deserted you. So, um, no, I mean the privateers. They wouldn't. Well, we the privateers wouldn't have been there without the manufacturers, and right. the manufacturers wouldn't have been there without the privateers. So it works. It worked all around, really. So there was a good symbiosis going on at the time, and I wanted yeah. to ask you about because I noticed when even like I was 
I was in my teens when Group C was racing, but I used to get to watch it um, on Screen Sport at the time, which eventually became Eurosport. What I noticed about that, and actually looking as well, as you talk about, say, when the, in the aftermath of a win at Le Mans in particular, and even in America, I'm sure, with Daytona, the 24-hour race there, what I always noticed about that was there was almost yeah. a football-like atmosphere at the races, and it almost seemed like a national sense of pride existed when it came to, in particular, the factory teams. Unlike Formula One, it, Group C seemed to have this. Um, was that a positive thing in, in, in the series? Oh, yes. I, I think this was really very, very important thing. What I'd like to do is to use a footballing analogy. Mm-hmm. In those days, the build-up to the start at Le Mans in particular was like, was like the World Cup final. And the, the final consisted of Germany, Italy, Japan and France in the final. You know, So you can imagine that. And the amazing thing was that I was on the pitch. So it was it was absolutely brilliant atmosphere. Uh, but the big difference was there was no crowd violence, just a large, extremely knowledgeable crowd. They knew the drivers, they knew the cars, they knew who should be where. I mean, um, particularly on the Mulsanne Strait, there's a, uh, one, of the, um, uh, one of the marshal posts is always manned by all Brits. So every time you went past in a British car, yeah. they all, you know, went particularly mad. And it, it was just such uh, a very, very special uh, thing. And it's difficult to describe, but hopefully I'm giving giving you guys a, a feel for it. Formula One has always been associated with teams, McLaren, Ferrari, yeah. um, Tyrrell going back a few years and so on. But I think, as you say, with, with Group C, it was the actual manufacturers and they were they were flag-waving their origin, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and there were, a lot, lot, there were a lot of Union Jacks, yeah. especially in 1988 when yeah. the Jags won. <laughs> yeah, I see. You're absolutely correct because it didn't seem to matter if the drivers were not from the UK. No, that was a wonderful atmosphere. And there was, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a camaraderie among the crowd, you know, and it was... Oh, yeah, just so special. And, can and I, it always has been. I mean, and was it similar in the United States? I mean, was there kind of a similar feeling in the United States if you raised there? There were always a lot of flags in America, mm-hmm. but there was only one of them. <laughs> yes, that... I get you. <laughs> we shan't go into this in this current atmosphere. I get exactly what you mean. And just just sticking with IMSA as well. I mean, how important was the American series at the time, say, compared to Group C? Well, I raced in IMSA, and it was very kind to me. IMSA, but it was never the same. I mean, the closest you get would be Daytona 24 hours and Sebring is special. Yeah. I found Sebring more more special. That than, was the uh, race that was raced on the airfield, is that right? That's a 12 hour yeah, race. Well, yeah, well, still, yeah. still is. It's a 12 hour and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wacky track, I tell you. Um, you know, it's built of those massive the B-52 bombers base or something. That, when you get out on the back straight, the back straight's just you know, you just, the uh, first time I went around, I couldn't, I, I finished up about two miles away from the track. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it looks like that when you're watching it, Lawrence. These big massive slabs uh, of concrete, you know. <laughs> yeah. But another little story about Sebring was, and talking about driving open cars there, which I did early on, uh, there's a particular corner where uh, there's a big crowd of uh, crazy fans all building huge cones of beer cans. 
and uh, smoking something uh, different, let's put it that way. And as you drove past, you know, you actually got high going around the corner, you know. <laughs> you had to hold your breath as you went through. So there was a, health, there was a health, health and safety <laughs> warning. There was a health and safety warning oh, around exactly. the rear end. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But, oh. but no, um, I don't think the Americans they didn't really seem to like coming to Europe. It, mm. And... Um, they weren't they weren't that quick when they came and we used to do well in the states against them so i don't know but they were very insular the, you know uh, preston hen was an exception to that he he was he, he ran a nine ooh, five six or a nine six two in europe yeah uh, you know quite successfully but um and a great guy but he, really he's the only one that stands out so no they weren't as important they were they were a, an aside in my view but there was a good standard of American drivers still racing in America. People like Danny Sullivan yes. and so on. So oh, they, they yeah. did. They did. Um, they did uh, transfer well to the American, the European cars, though, did they? Yeah. Yes. Yes and no. But no, they didn't come. Not they didn't mm. come in the droves. Right. You know, it's all no. Um, but I think IMSA. Well, single. I think the American public either the two camps really. There's NASCAR. And IndyCar, and somehow IMSA fell in the middle, and uh, that's my view because you know I, I'd loved to have driven at Indy, but I, I never did. Mm -hmm. That was an ambition. But, yeah, uh, I fulfilled most of them, but that's one uh, one that I missed. Think of think I don't think I'll get in there now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd want to be there now. It looks a bit too quick, I think, for the average um, human being almost at this point. No. <laughs> Well, they were pretty quick then. <laughs> but and, I tell you what, they weren't as quick as the fastest car down the Mulsanne straight. Right. That would have been, uh, so, what, 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 I mean, they, they were re coming up to two, three, five miles per hour at one point, weren't they, before they put the chicanes in? No, well, in quali, yeah. uh, in qualifying. The Peugeot holds the, the fastest time was at two, uh, hold, hold me, let me help. I think it's 256 miles per hour. That's the Evo one from... 1992 the, or something but, that was it oh right yeah. okay you're i know you got now, we, but, we were both guessing i think we leave it at the fact that we know it was yeah. the Peugeot. <laughs> well i'd also i i went down there mm. in the uh, a c1 dome mm -hmm. uh to, to, i think we were 246 through the speed trap just before the king and that was the last race before the chicanes i think right think. and the dome was a um, japanese uh, designed and built car wasn't it yeah yeah, I could almost claim to be a works dome driver because mm -hmm. in qualifying, the works car uh, crashed at the S's big time in qualifying, totally wrecked it, and they couldn't repair it. And I was driving for Dorset Racing, my great friend Tony Birchinoff, rest in peace, Tony, uh, who uh, he, he bought the previous year's dome, and I was driving that. I know Nick Four was one of the other drivers. I can't remember who the third one may have been. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's all on the record somewhere. And that was an amazing car. But because, so the, the, the works, Tony, Tony got the deal of a lifetime because the uh, Dome had got 300 guests arriving or something and hadn't got a car. So, <laughs> so they, they sort of, I think they bought the car back off tony and yeah. we so we, we ran it as the works car wow i mean uh, you could never do that nowadays but back then it was just probably no. just something that you could just do at the last minute i can't i'll tell you what i'll tell you what year that was in a minute i think that was 84 yeah 
going back to the championship itself, I mean, Group C effectively collapsed around 1993. There was a lot of regulation changes and they uh, also there was cars like the 962 being phased out. And really the big one was the introduction of, say, the 3.5 litre Formula 1 style normally aspirated engines. In hindsight, when you look back on that, Richard, um, what do you think were the deciding factors of its demise, apart from what I just mentioned there? Well, my, my view is that it's the same is the same now as it was then. Group C become too successful, really, for its own good. Mm-hmm. Uh, everywhere we went, there were huge crowds. The TV figures were getting right up there with F1, and the powers that be didn't like it. And I'm not sure now, really. It was Bernie and, well, Balestra was in the mix as well, because Balestra was the president of the FIA in the lead-up to that. Or, to be honest, it's so confusing, the politics, but there was FISA, and F- Belestra was FISA, then he became um, FIA, and then Max, somehow or other, Max Mosley, somehow or other, ousted Belestra. And these changes all happened around that time. Mm. And it was just too successful, and it was a genuine threat to F1. Yeah, and Bernie Ecclestone, he was in charge of Group C at that t- point. If I remember yes, correctly, yes, he took it over. But well, he took it over to kill it. Obviously, he did. Yes, I mean, did, did, like, but what, what I look, I looked back on some of the um, the news reports and you know some of the opinion pieces that were written at the time, and it just didn't that didn't seem to come up. I don't know whether it was a case that journalists at the time were afraid to say it, but in hindsight, you could see it. It was written on the wall. You know, any modern modern person with journalists now would say, "Oh, that's the end of Group C." I mean, like you can see any business venture like that, you know that. When two car companies come together and they were both rivals and one of those car companies buy their, you know, it, it's, it's it's a long shot that both of them are going to have an equal standing coming out of that. So it just came across very strange that no one actually was saying, you know, trying to raise a red flag and say, look, this is the end of Group C. What are we going to do about it? And um, it, it seemed to be that as well. It, following the fact that it was collapsed, I mean, there was a lot of confusion in sports car racing, um, probably until they came up with the idea of the GT1 series, which which featured the McLaren F1, the Porsche, uh, and the Mercedes and so on. Th- that type of racing, though, Richard, it proved to be very popular until it was also outlawed in favour of, you know, the, the, what we have currently, the Le Mans prototypes. I wanted to ask you, um, in the 1990s, you saw the GT1 category, and it, it was replaced, obviously, by LMP. Um, were you a fan of the GT1 series and the LMP cars that are currently around? Well, yes, because I've, I've driven GT cars mm. a lot. I mean, we, 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 could do, we could do 10 podcasts on... We sure could. Probably the cars. <laughs> but, I mean, as early as in the 82, I, I drove um, uh, a 9... Oh, God, I get all these... 935, was nine, it? 935 mm. with Tony Tron and Richard Clear, and we won our class. Get that one in, yeah, um, yeah. And just whilst we're on that subject, I also won my class in '78 uh, with uh, in Group Six. So, and then moving on to um, GT1, I only ever drove one, and that was a Ferrari, the Ferrari F40, uh, which was a good match for the GT Porsche, I think. Uh, and I love that car, but I didn't have many runouts in it. But I still, I still drive that car actually. <laughs> Because it's owned by an Italian friend of mine, and he lives near Rome. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's, there's a regular race for, for you know whatever they are, classic Italian classics and stuff, and we give it a run out at Vallelonga every so often. So uh, I'm still there. I'm still having a go now and then. So 
you you think that the uh, introduction of the GT1 category was a really good replacement for Group C? Yes, I think it was, and and but the, the, and they didn't become as big a threat to F1. So whether that meant it was a less of a success, I, I don't know. But all this racing um, revolves around Le Mans at mm-hmm. the end of the day. The championships uh, are designed well, to, for cars that run at Le Mans. And you can't get an entry for Le Mans unless you do the whole championship or series, whatever it is, whatever. Um, unless you're Peugeot, of course, and you can just turn up for Le Mans and it's all right. <laughs> but uh, So, uh, and those uh, GT1 cars were spectacular at Le Mans. So, I, 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 I ha- there's hardly a category I've driven in, Ken, that uh, I haven't embraced and enjoyed immensely. But the, the more horsepower, the better, of course. <laughs> I don't like the, but, uh, the... Yes, it was great. Do you think that the fact that the you know, sports car racing, whether it be GT, sports prototype, open top cars, whatever, that they generally revolve around Le Mans. Do you think that's a positive thing or a negative thing? Because that doesn't seem to happen in, say, Formula One. There, although we have Monaco, but, you know, Formula One would survive probably without Monaco. But sports car racing, as you say, it seemed to revolve around Le Mans. So is that a good thing or a bad thing, in your opinion? I think it's a good thing. Hmm. It gives it to the nucleus. Everybody, that's why I think they changed it to the Le Mans Championship or the Le Mans Series, isn't it? You know, I think they call it, it's not, it's not a championship, it's a series. But you still, you still have to do every round or you won't get your Le Mans entry. Uh, so it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like, I'll, I'll use a footballing analogy again. You know, you've got to go and do all, you've got to play all the rounds of the FA Cup to get to the, to get to the final, haven't you? So, I mean, it's like the final. Like the Holy Grail or the top, yeah. the top table, and you know, which is why they, they, well, obviously it's all been upset by COVID this year, but they they run the the series from mid year to mid year with with Le Mans being the final. If you see what I mean? So that's that. Yeah, that, so it is. It's the it's the nucleus for it all, and I think that's a good thing. And I just um just we're going to touch briefly on your your actual career racing at Le Mans. I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, one of your more prolific races, which was 1988, I think. And um, you were on board for the uh, Spice Heart, which was, I think it's SE86C. Um, you raced with um, a fellow Irishman, Martin Borain. Did you, did you like Martin? Was he a good guy to race alongside? Martin was a wonderful guy. Mm. And he's a real loss to uh, both sides of the Irish Sea. <laughs> Usually successful businessman uh, in London, property developer, but always a gentleman. And I never, ever heard a bad word about Martin Bahrain, wow. either either commercially or at the racing scene. And I think I can say this. Uh, he, he had quite a badly handicapped son who was a lovely lad. Or is, hopefully, I'm sure he still is a lovely lad. And he would, not every time, but regularly, he, Martin would bring him to the track. And he, he had, you know, he was physically fine, but he had a bit of, well, I think, learning difficulties and and he was just a joy to have around and uh, and uh, that's how you know he really got a heart that guy and uh, I, I sadly miss him anyway for one I'm sure a lot of people do I think Martin you know in terms of Irish motor racing you know he's like the Moses <laughs> he kind of brought he brought the mountain to Ireland rather than trying to get Ireland to compete so many drivers yeah. um, who came out of the scene in the 1970s 
um, owe their, you know, their careers to Martin because he kept, like, we had only got one track at the time, Mondello. It was in a pretty sad state till Martin took it over. And, you know, he I know, basically... I know, I drove it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah. he helped to bring that track up to a world standard. And, um, yeah. you know, drivers that came out of Ireland at the time, all of them speak so highly about him. As a, as a, and, you know, I don't know whether you noticed, um, Richard, but he also holds the record for the Irish land speed record as well. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, that now. was just about to be opened. It was a kind of a ring road that went around Dublin at the time in 1988, I think it was. And he took out, I can't remember what it was, I might have guessed that and said it was probably a Chevron or something like that. And he took it out and uh, broke the land speed record just before they opened it, you know. But then again, you see, only Martin could have probably got that. You know, he would have got permission to do that. But yeah. I wanted to ask you about his, his skill because we're going to go back to the race that you participated in. Was he a really good driver though? Because I'm not saying that he wasn't. I just don't know. I've never seen or heard Martin in action. So you, you raced alongside him. Was he, an, was he a good driver? Martin was an excellent long distance driver. He was never going to put it, you know, you wouldn't stick him on to, in to do the quali lap, to be honest. But he was incredibly consistent around Le Mans. Which is what you need, especially pace. at night he, then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you could rely on him to do those stints and push, punch in the times that were necessary, not necessarily the ones, you know, when you really had to press, you'd probably stick somebody else in then. But but for, for, especially for Le Mans or, and, and any long distance race, he was a great asset to the team. But he was a complete package, more, I suppose. In more ways than one. Yeah, it's just as I said, he was a big bit of a package because he probably, probably bought a bit of sponsorship, a bit of kind of, you know, uh, expertise and probably more decent size of professionalism to any team that he goes to. Yeah, you certainly saw a lot of uh, a large sign saying peer group on mm-hmm. on the cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, let's come. let's talk about that race that you were in with Martin back in 1988. Um, you qualified, I think, the the spice on pole position. Now, I want to I want to ask you about something because I'm I, I did my research. I was ta- I was reading a book there, which was written by Michael Cotton and Ian Briggs. It's kind of like the uh, the report of that race. Now, it just it says here, <laughs> I'm not going to go into it verbatim, but apparently you were there just by chance because the um the the, the driver who was listed to race at the team because the team was actually Martin. Then there was Nick Adams, great driver from the UK, and then they had a guy called Bobby Orr who was a stunt driver from the US. Now, apparently, Bobby had a few problems getting into getting you know comfortable in the car and he had trouble i think getting getting a good decent qualifying lap off and then apparently what happened was he couldn't manipulate the pedals and then he set off the fire extinguisher apparently while he was driving so he was having a bit of a torrid time but it, it just so turns out and this, i think there's a slight bit of sarcasm here it says that you just happened to be there with your with your gloves hat i saw your gloves helmet and, and racing overalls was that was that just by sheer chance, or was there was there a bit of a story behind that, Richard? Well, there's always a bit of a story behind lots of things, isn't it? But, um, yeah, but Bobby, I mean, he just didn't fit in the car. I mean, it was as simple as that. He's a big guy, and I think he got size fourteen feet. So, uh, <laughs> okay. and I think that's uh, pretty big for a racing driver, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Unless you're racing he, monster he was... trucks or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, he was a bit of a character. He, he arrived with the biggest motorhome, you know, <laughs> and there are some big motorhomes there, and, uh, which all became very handy. But, I mean, he, he just, he, he was physically too big to drive a car. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was as simple as that. But, I mean, as I, as I touched on earlier, I think, I am a, a bit of a journeyman, and uh, I think it was a week before or two weeks before, 
Hugh Chamberlain phoned me up and said, Rich, I think, uh, I think you better be on standby here. <laughs> so <laughs> I was on standby and uh, what, uh, what we thought might happen uh, did happen. But, but it, turned, it turned out to be a pretty good race for you guys, though, didn't it? I mean, you did quite well. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, we, uh, I mean, you, you, I don't think we, you didn't last the race. I think we got across the line. No, yeah. we didn't last Yeah, race, I mean, technically. I think we were like, so many different races, and mm. I can't remember what, why, why we retired in the end. But um, uh, I think it was yeah, a broken drive cool. shaft. I think that's what took Oh, was it? Right. Yeah. Okay. Was yeah. It? Yeah, I was just was that just was that just hard wear and tear on the on the track? Was it so was Le Mans so hard on a car that it would shear a drive shaft? Yeah, but I mean the spice was, I think. Well, if it if it got a bang, maybe it's. Um, I think that that if if it, you know if you didn't touch anything, it shouldn't have done that. But I mean drive shafts go, don't they? I mean it does happen, but it's usually as a result of some sort of contact. And even if you get away with the contact initially, it you know it it'll manifest itself later so that's yeah i think I it got remember. i think it got stuck in the sand at some point i think martin might have spun oh, a bit well. and so that probably all oh, right well it, it wasn't me in the sand i can i'd remember that <laughs> yeah and just yeah. To, just to touch uh, on well, that... martin in the car was it yeah, yeah, yeah. But, i mean that's unusual for martin because yeah. uh, he would normally yeah very uh, well if the if the drive shaft snapped on him then yeah yeah okay. It was lucky to finish in the sand. I wanted to touch on something there because you mentioned it earlier on when you were talking about the Group 6 cars. In terms of, say, what their preference was, do you think generally drivers at that time preferred open-top cars or closed cars? Yeah, well, at Le Mans, I, I always like to drive open cars. But, I mean, it, it, with Group C, it didn't, it, it didn't become an option. There wasn't one to drive. So, uh, yeah, you just adapt and, and get on with it. Were, but, they, were uh, they particularly hot, it, say, for example, now? Driving inside a group. Seat. Oh no! Well, no, because you you got good good airflow through the car. That 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 well, some 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 races, some years when it was stinking hot outside. Yeah, you could get very very warm, but it wasn't didn't make that much difference to the open cars because with the open cars you didn't get any air through because sure. It, <laughs> uh, so in a way it wasn't much different. And there was one thing I wanted to ask you about because I mean obviously only somebody with your experience can convey what this feels like everyone has driven at night and you know the instinct when you're driving at night is to obviously be more careful and slow down so how can you drive at night and try and you know go faster if needs be than you did during the day what what is it what's the trick oh the trick is uh to concentrate (laughs) perhaps a little bit harder but not much Mm -hmm. and the other thing is the, the lights these days are amazing can uh i mean it's they're so good and the the downside of that is when you've got the cars behind you of course because uh, they've got good lights as well but uh, but you 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 somehow learn to adapt or you don't even need to look in your mirrors to know that they're there so i would always you know you just use your periphery vision for the light don't don't stare at your mirror or your wing mirrors just but because you, you don't need to because the lights are so bright you know who's there and you can tell which side they're on yeah but you can still just keep st- looking straight ahead did, did you prefer driving at night to say during the day i love driving at night really wow. it's something okay. magical yeah oh you, you, you're really gonna think i'm a nutter now because i used to <laughs> love it at night in the rain <laughs> i mean it's on just slicks so, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> just for the hell of it I, just I stick the slicks on just for the hell of it <laughs> 
Oh, no, we didn't have that. Let's get that, man. But the other interesting thing about Le Mans, just whilst we're talking about the night, uh, uh, is the the stint when you're going from pitch black to to light. Because what happens then, if it, we're assuming a dry track here, the, there's always a lot of accidents from because the drivers tend to relax. Uh, oh, right, it's coming daylight. We've got through the night. Rah, 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 maybe even speed up. A, and it's it's a very dangerous time because the the track's been covered in a dew, even though it hasn't been raining. Nice. But the dew is in the cracks in the track. But when it gets daylight, the as the light gets on the track, the uh, sorry, the dew comes down. Mm. Yeah. And it raises the oil to the surface. So the track always gets very slippery as the dawn comes up and it catches a lot of people out. So of course, when I always mention this to the drug in the team briefing before, look, whoever's in the car at that point, uh, don't forget this. And uh, they say nine times out of 10, say, right, okay, you've got that stint. <laughs> so <laughs> sort myself into it. Then. But, uh, and it does, it's taken a lot of cars out, always accidents first thing in the morning. Was it? So I, I do remember now. that a lot of drivers, when say they were being interviewed or during the commentary for the Daytona Twenty Four Hours, there's a problem because it being during the winter that there's a problem with the sunlight in between, say sunset and sunrise, isn't there? It's difficult to drive at that time in Daytona, isn't it? Well, well, coincidentally, yes, and it is. There's a particular place. Well, Le Mans is a classic as well, actually, because uh, it's where as the sun is going down at Le Mans. When you come out of the Mulsan bend, you know, at the end of the Mulsan Strait, you turn right to head off down to Indianapolis. And the sun, if you know, is absolutely on the horizon all the way down there through those kinks on the way down to Indianapolis. You've got the sun right in your eyes. And that is a nightmare. It's not easy, that. But it doesn't last too long. It's the sun's soon gone. So you've probably only got two, maximum three laps to cope with. Gotcha. Like that. Mm. So, but uh, Daytona, yeah. Well, I mean, it's an oval, isn't it? You're yeah. going to get the sun somewhere all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> Every lap. So yeah. just to ask you, say, when you're driving in a 12-hour in a race, say, like Sebring, and then you have a 24-hour race in Le Mans, do they require a completely different style of driving? Mm, that's an interesting question. So I don't, no, I don't think there is. Uh, I mean, every track's got different characteristics, mm-hmm. so... And obviously, and Le Mans and Sebring are both very different in different ways to almost all the other places. So I think they've both got very long straights. Uh, so they're similar in that regard. Obviously, Sebring's a lot shorter. Um, but the actual focus during racing, not a lot of difference. No. Mm. And for you, was Le Mans yeah. the greatest track you've ever driven at? Was it your favourite? <laughs> oh, I'm so old. I remember the old, uh, the old spa before they shortened it. I mean, I love sports, but that that old spa track was magical again at night because I did quite a few saloon the 24-hour races at Spa in the saloon cars. Mm-hmm. In its day, was fantastic. You know, when there were those, you know, the the BMW six series where they were with Stuck and all those boys. Um, and that was a fantastic track. Mm-hmm. It's a toss-up between both Spas and Le Mans. Yeah. And just to ask you another question, say, without too much details, when you were driving a Group C, did you have a favourite co-driver that you always like to say sit in the car along, alongside with? Uh, yes. 
and it, and you, we've already mentioned his name, or you have. Yeah. And it's Nick Adams. Right, Nick Adams. And yeah. just to, just to, just 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 to put the record straight as well. That year we um, when we were on pole, uh, it was Nick that did the lap, the pole lap. Right. He just pipped me by about a tenth of a second. We were very very similar, and we had a very well, I say have. I still I see a lot of Nick. We're still very close friends, and uh, he's he's a director of the BRDC, so we see a lot of each other at meetings and things. And but we were very similar style, and he would say he all you know we complimenting we complimented each other because we had such a similar style um, that you know when I handed over to him he would say oh the car felt just the same as that and you know um, when he handed it over to me it was I mean we we looked after the brakes we looked after the gearbox and I'll say it we we're pretty damn quick as well yeah so you know uh, it was yeah it was always special driving with Nick. And overall, say, in terms of Group C, was it your favourite category that you've ever raced in? It's okay to say no now. <laughs> <laughs> was the Spice my favourite car? No, actually, driving in Group C. I mean, was Group C as a category your favourite category to race in? Um, oh, well, it's, a, it's so difficult to mm. state which one is my favourite because mm. I drove a lot of single-seaters. Mm. I did the Aurora Formula One Championship in the uh, UK. An Ensign, which was a bit of a dog, but the Surtees I drove was a fantastic car. Um, I drove F2 cars and Formula 3000 a lot mm -hmm. uh, in the British Formula 3000 Championship. And um, I, I think my heart's with single-seaters, to be honest. Really? But, okay. Which is probably probably what I shouldn't say. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> but, fine. Uh, racing is uh, racing, but, you know? No, but I mean, it's single-seaters, it's a younger man's thing. And mm -hmm. it's a natural mm -hmm. progression to go from, from that. Which sort of uh, you know you made me feel very old when you were a teenager in the in in the eighties, uh, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, I, I I loved it all, Ken. I I really don't want to say yeah, one was better than the other. It yeah. was that dome and the speed down the Mulsanne. Yeah. The trouble was it wouldn't go around any of the other corners. <laughs> it was fantastic down the straight, but it was very long and very narrow. The very very long wheelbase and very narrow. So. Yeah. It was very, very quick down. The, but as soon as you got to the Porsche curve, everybody was all over you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But anyway. Looking back, say, on Group C, was the Spice the most, say, reliable, enjoyable car to drive in Group C? Yes, in a word. They just nailed it, didn't I, I they, really when they designed it. that car, yeah. say, and when it developed over the, say, three or four years that it was kind of at the top tier. But they really nailed it first time. I mean, it looked like it just came out of the box, ready to go. Yeah. Well... Gordon, Gordon mm. Spice, another friend of mine, who who did all that. I mean, he he was a a very very quick driver, but he was a good, you know, he knew what he wanted from a car, and he delivered that, as you say, straight out of the box. Yeah, I'm not sure who built the actual chassis. It's probably, you know, Lola or something. Actually, uh, I actually branded. think it was done. I know Graham Humphreys designed the actual cars yeah. themselves, and uh, yeah. if I was to, if I was to, I'm I'm just trying to guess. I think it was probably designed. Um, I think they had their own factory, didn't they? They manufactured it themselves. I okay. think. Right. If, if okay. I remember, That's good. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, I think it was built. In, in, I know. Wasn't Ray Bellum involved in it as well? He was involved. Oh, in that's it. right. Yeah, of course he was. Yeah. 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 So I think they actually manufactured. They they were constructing their own cars around '86, I think it was, and then they kind yeah. of they 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 got in. They got a big deal with Pontiac, I think, in America, and that that gave them a lot of 
um, orders. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but then again, the car actually looked slightly American with that kind of heart, you know, that kind of teardrop style at the back of it. It, it looked more like a GT yeah. car than it did look like um, than a than a than a Group C car. It didn't have that kind of oval style yeah. um, in you know head on it, like a cover. It was like this kind of swoopy back, and I think that appealed to the American, the American uh, market. Yes. you know. Yeah, because yeah, I, I drove a, a, a an IMSA Spice at Sebring, mm. and um, there was a difference. There was, I think, it was en- engines, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. They, they, Pontiacs. They, I know they the ran Pontiacs with... ran in America. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it had a different feel to it, but it was still a lovely car to drive. Yeah, and and, um, uh, and get Ray the right Bannum, tires. Yeah. And I Listerine, suppose... Listerine, probably paid for it. <laughs> Listerine, okay, yes. nice fresh yeah. start to the day. Ray, <laughs> Ray Bellum's dad's company. Oh, I see. Right. Oh, okay. sorry. What are your thoughts on, say, the current state of motor racing around the world? Say, sports car racing. What, I mean, what what do you think of sports car racing currently? Well, it, it's been obvious for obvious COVID reasons. It's mm. been an incredibly strange year. So to get a really current fit, feel for it is difficult. But mm. I think considering that and the, the amount of races that they've managed to do, and that uh, the regulation changes for next year which sound great. I mean, talking about normally aspirated V12 engines mm. and things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, that sounds pretty exciting to, uh, you know, somebody of my era. That, yeah. You know, perhaps they'll make a proper noise again. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm confident. I'm, I'm hopeful for the future of it all. Do you eventually see, though, an electric car or a hydrogen engine, hydrogen-powered car winning at Le Mans? Do you think it's inevitable? Yeah, matter of time. Mm. I'm, I'm sure. I think maybe a, 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 comb- a combination of hydrogen and electric. Yeah. Not, not that I'm technical enough to know. If that's I think that's I think that's the thing. ideal. I think but, that's the ideal combination. Like it's yeah. fueled, the fuel cells are electrical, but they're being powered by hydrogen gas. And I think that's. Yes. The, I think that's. So I mean, it, it's. Do you think it'd be? It'll obviously. I mean, the way the world is going. I mean, climate change and so on. That the, the internal combustion engine is probably in its twilight. Anyway, would you agree? Oh yes. Mm. Yes, I know. It's just I, I'm going to be kick, taken kicking and screaming into that era, but yeah. uh, I, I understand the inevitability. <laughs> yeah, but I think I mean I, I do think that there's still a long time, you know, for it to go because I mean yeah. you know we I I'm in the classic car business a lot, and a lot of people come to me and give me you know the conversation they want the conversation with me about my cars, for example. I have two or three old cars, and um, you know people say to me, oh, are you not like you know you should be contributing to the environment and keeping them off the road. But you and I know, if you were to add up all of the classic motor racing cars, all of the classic cars around the world, and look at the percentage that they ha- they are in the world compared to the rest of the cars, they say everyday models of cars, it's minute. It wouldn't make any kind. Of, it doesn't make any kind of impact on the environment, really. So I think you know, I think the same applies to motor racing because if you were to add up all of the motor racing cars that are currently say racing, again, it's tiny. You know, because you only have like twenty cars in Formula One every year racing what in 20 races so i think there's still a bit of time for the 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 internal combustion (laughs) engine to last for a while but i suppose it's an exciting adventure you know when you think about it um you know everything's you know that motor racing wouldn't be exciting if it didn't develop i mean would we still want to be driving in cars like that are completely unsafe and wearing leather helmets i don't think anybody would agree to that so no i i i I totally agree but uh but going back to your older cars um Hmm. i think um We've got to look after our heritage. Definitely, we? they've Definitely. got to be around for our kids and grandkids and Couldn't all that. Too. 
and again, I throw, it, that, so I throw that argument to people about steam engines. You know, if we had adopted the same oh, attitude God. about steam engines, you know, they wouldn't be yeah. they wouldn't be around. And we have a huge um, where I where I am in Kildare in Ireland, we have a huge steam engine uh, get together every year. I mean, you're talking like 100, 150 steam working engines coming over from the UK and Europe. And these are like incredible engineering. They require the most amazing yeah. type levels of engineering to keep them running. And, um, you know, the contribution to the environment is zero, but they have to be here. And I think the same is going to apply in terms of classic cars and classic motor racing cars, because if we lose that, we're losing a huge part of our heritage, even if it's kind of something that we look back on and say, mm, you know, it didn't do our environment pretty good. But I think as long as we kind yeah. of think that we need to develop, and I, that's what I love about motor racing, and I'm sure you know this because you've been at the, the front of that. Um, tech, the greatest, the best technologies, ABS brakes, um, power steering, they all started in motor racing. Oh, yeah. Disc brakes mm. yeah, at Le Mans. You know, the, the Jaguar D-Type, I think, was the first one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a, uh, the, the, we have to have motor racing, I'm quite sure. What do you think of, say, um, the young drivers at the moment? Do you think that they're a different type of driver now? I think they've, they've, they've been brought up in this modern era and their their, their technical abilities are second to none. Yeah. I think they're fantastic, mm-hmm. bright, young, highly intelligent guys mm. um, and would run circles around me uh, <laughs> on that side and all good credit to them. Yeah. And there's some cr- really good, uh, exciting talent coming through. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a tough one because there's so many of them and only a few can actually make it. But yeah. And... I think what what's helped them enormously of these been the the quality of the uh, simulators these days. Yeah, and what do you think of the Sims? Do you do you think the Sims are a good idea? Because that was going to be my next question. Uh, was it all right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it leads into nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's like you were talking about uh, electric cars and mm. hydrogen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't. They're there, yeah. and uh, the teams are going to use them, yeah. and uh, so it's just more innovation and mm-hmm. uh but i mean i can remember driving simulators you know way back but i mean that's just so more so much different now i yeah. mean to the point where you can feel every bump in the road on every circuit around the world if you plug in the right disc you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible what well, you know the it's so real and that must be a massive benefit but all 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 their competitors all, all the these young guys that are racing against each other yeah. they've all got that same advantage yeah so, exactly so um, it's just natural now it's a, it's a part of being yeah. a modern professional racing driver yeah and then you look at the steering wheels alone i mean <laughs> how many buttons are there on them i mean <laughs> they're like something out of the millennium falcon in star wars i, I, I just can't. Yeah, and they're getting yeah. they're getting more and more technical, and there's so much more control. Yeah, and distract. I presume you'd call that distraction as well, wouldn't you? I mean, you talked about earlier on about yeah. concentrating. I mean, having to invest your level of concentration into other things while, as you say, t- yeah. pl- plummeting down Mulzan Strait at you know 200 kilometers per hour uh, in the rain, uh, you know, at night, and having to flick a switch yeah. here, there, and everywhere it must be quite daunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just struggle to find the radio button. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, not quite. Which actually, Richard, just one one last question. I didn't intend to ask you this question, but now that we've spoken about this, I think this is something I was I'd like to ask you. Did you see the recent movie? um, You know, Le Mans sixty six. Did you manage to get get a chance to see? Oh yes, yeah. What did you think of that movie? Oh, fantastic! And I didn't know that story. I mean, that guy that lost it because he obeyed team orders. Yeah, Yeah, Ken, somebody was it? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
So no, but it was brilliantly done. Yeah. Actually, that's what I was asking you about. Did you say to yourself, "Wow, oh, that's pretty. That looks pretty authentic." Well, no, not well. The, the, it wasn't the Mulsanne straight they were on. Yeah. Okay. You got that. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I think they, they've got Indianapolis and R and R sort mm. of thing. Maybe a bit. Uh, of course, it was pre Porsche curves. So. Yeah. Yeah. And did they uh, capture? Uh, but did they yeah. capture the essence of you know those cars? Yeah. yeah. Oh no, uh, they definitely captured the essence, but. Uh, it was, yeah, my only criticism was that uh, it wasn't the ball sound straight, yeah. but I suppose it, was, it would have cost a few quid to shut that down. Probably, it? yeah, that's it. For a bit of filming. Yeah. Uh, but if you didn't know it, it, as well, you would. Mm -hmm. So I think for the general public, that wasn't the problem. Yeah, I and think I thoroughly it, enjoyed it anyway. I mean, know, I think so the movie worked in terms that it managed to have people who are very watching it who weren't interested at all in motor racing. But the story, as you say, was a very, you know a very rich and good story that needed to be told, you know. And Richard, I just wanted to ask you as well, um, what are you doing at the moment? Are you still involved in motor racing? Yes, oh yeah, very much so. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing uh, track days. Uh, I'm available for mm -hmm. uh, coaching. Um, all, I go all over the country doing it, but particularly uh, I'm sort of a, a, a product um, uh, manager, whatever you want to call yep. manager, that's the wrong word, uh, um, You're an uh, influencer, for, uh, Richard. Uh, I'm an influencer, <laughs> yeah, for Cataclean. That's it. I'm, I'm getting all these new technologies. Ah, Podcasts, no another one. What's Cataclean, Richard? Tell us all about that. That sounds like something to do with engine power. Uh, yeah, well, it's yes, it's um, fuel additive. It cleans all of your catalytic mm -hmm. converters, mm -hmm. uh, all of the, the pistons, the cylinders, yep. the valves. It cleans everything right through. Uh, it increases uh, the power, but one of its big points is that if you take your car for an MOT yep. and uh, it fails on the emissions, you put a bottle of Cataclean in it, drive it around for 20 minutes, half an hour, take it back and it'll pass. Right, gotcha. Or it will almost certainly pass, I suppose I should say. And you can find but, the products uh, yeah. on... Cataclean, yeah. yeah. Dot com. Yeah. Great stuff. And uh, you're involved with <laughs> yeah. in that. And also, come here, they do a bit of racing, don't they? I think they sponsor uh, the yeah. British Touring Car Championship, is it? One of the cars there? Yes, that's right. Yep, uh, a, a team called Sicily, yep. uh, Mercedes. Super. And uh, so I've I've helped coach some of their. They've got some younger drivers coming through, so I've, I'm helping with that. Um, that and, car looks uh, pretty spectacular. I'm just looking at it here online, and it's done oh, yeah. this black and white. It looks pretty cool. It's but uh, yeah, and I'll mention Dan, our, our driver, Dan, Dan Robotham. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, he. Got, you know, because of all the COVID, okay, touring cars happened in the end, but to, yeah. we'd already ar arranged a, a deal to run in a NASCAR in Europe. So oh, that's wow. all been that's been very exciting. And uh, but we are looking for a comeback in British touring cars next season. So watch this space on that one. Okay, and they're sponsored, of course, by by Cataclean, who you you are uh, an influencer for. Let's give you that lovely yeah. modern title. I mean, that's what it. a man to have an influence on. And of course, then you are still. I mean, do you still do um? Do you do any kind of uh, historic racing or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, well, yeah. Well, I mean, that the Ferrari F40 that we talked about in mm -hmm. the meeting. I, I drive that, which is which is excellent, and uh, I do quite a bit of setup for. Uh, chevrons are a bit sort of a bit of my speciality with uh, oh wow excellent that, uh, you know because those that was my earliest sports car experience sure. was in chevrons and in the group six days which we've discussed already and Brilliant. um yeah the, so yeah i'm keeping my hand in i'm keeping fit anybody wants to get in touch with you richard they can um they can get in touch with me and i will yep. 
pass on my details or you're on Facebook as well aren't you that's how I got you so yeah you're, you're easily you're 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 an easy man to find on Facebook that's brilliant <laughs> That's okay. the way we want it. Richard, listen, yeah. thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, it's It's been really brilliant. Um, we could have talked for another hour, I think. You know? I'm, I'm it, sure we like, could. There's about a million other questions I would love to ask you, which which probably wouldn't be uh, you know, good for a recording. <laughs> but, okay, yeah, well, but, I'll tell you what then. When, when all this COVID nonsense is over, I'll, I'll come over and we'll go and have a pint somewhere and I'll give you the, I'll, t- I'll tell you the unedited version. <laughs> That would be brilliant. The director's cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Richard, thanks a million for taking the time today. Um, we were talking to Richard Jones. Uh, we were talking about Group C Racing, and we kind of diverged a little bit, but sure, that's what happens when an Irishman and, and an Englishman get together and we have a good L chat <laughs> about sport. Thanks very much for taking the time today, Richard, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's been a pleasure, Ken. Thank you very much. for Thank you for having me, as I say. Lovely. Thanks a lot. And, of course, thank you to our listeners today, and we'll see you real soon on the next podcast. 